Black Doctors podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors podcast. This week, I'm so excited to be talking with Dr. Julia Stevenson. She is a board-certified plastic surgeon. She graduated from the Hampton University with a degree in biology before attending Penn State University College of Medicine, where she stayed for her residency at the Penn State Hershey Plastic Surgery Residency Program, where she was the first African-American person to complete that program. Dr. Stevenson, so excited to hear from you, hear about all the things you're up to with your own private uh, practice, cardinal plastic surgery, but welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. Awesome. So Dr. Stevenson, how was, uh, you know, start by asking you how uh, Hampton Institute or University, what was? It was Hampton University when I went. I was there from 1999 to 2003, so well into Hampton University. Gotcha. (laughs) get that out the way. (laughs) Yes. But tell us about your day in, day out life as a plastic surgeon. We see the shows, Nip Nip and Tuck, all the other (laughs) uh, reality TV shows. What is it like for you as a plastic surgeon? Mm, I love what I do. Um, Probably, you know, I see a range of things and I know a lot of people's understanding of plastic surgery can sometimes be skewed, uh, just like what you're mentioning with TV shows and and kind of the things that are out there with regards to plastic surgery. But with plastic surgery, it's really divided up into two sections of reconstruction and then the other is cosmetic. And to simplify it as much as possible, one is insurance-based and the other is not, so self-pay. Um, but you can definitely do some reconstructive surgeries if people don't have insurance that they can be self-pay. But I love it because of the variety. So in a day, I can see um, consultations from the emergency room, whether it's you know hand fractures, tendon lacerations, facial fractures, um, infections, those types of things. And probably the more common things that I see on a scheduled appointment basis um, are breast reconstructions and breast reductions from a reconstructive standpoint. And then um, for cosmetic, a lot of breast augmentations, tummy tucks, and those types of things. Or how many days out of the week are you in the operating room versus in your clinics? One to two days in the operating room per week with uh, some in-office procedures. So um, that can be, again, little skin uh, lesions like moles or things that are concerning for cancer. Um, I do carpal tunnels and those types of things in my office as well as some eyelid surgery. So I I try to do as much under local as possible, but those are the, the number of days that I'm in the in either in the operating room or doing procedures in my office. Gotcha. And what's the benefit of doing cases under local versus going to the OR? Because some patients kind of get weird mm-hmm. if they don't have anesthesia. Yeah, you have to uh, choose patients wisely, but um, you have a captive audience. (laughs) So I feel, you know, when I'm able to do things under local, you know, people can ask the questions that they want to ask. I can really talk to them about what to expect in their recovery and what I'm doing. And, And a lot of people are really interested in what you're doing. And again, you know, if you think about, surgery, especially if people are in anesthesia, you either have the time before surgery to tell them 
what to expect and what they can do afterwards. Uh, and again, depending on how overwhelmed they are about even having the surgery, they may forget most of that. Yeah. Um, and then it's also difficult if someone's waking up from anesthesia or telling their family member what they can and can't do. So, you know, if, if it's under local, you can sit there and talk to them and, you know, let them know what to expect. And again, they can really actually ask the questions that they want to ask. Yeah. Is there a price difference? Again, if it's if it's insurance um, for them, not necessarily. Well, yeah, because they're not undergoing anesthesia and not, you know, having something done at a facility. So, when it comes to surgeries, there are really three different costs. There's what the surgeon is paid. There is the anesthesia cost, hey. and then <laughs> and then there is the um, facility fee. So if it's at a hospital or at a surgery center or in the office, there's different um, fees. And so if you're at a hospital, usually the price from their standpoint is going to be much higher. So yes, there is a price difference for what the patient sees or what is sent to insurance for coverage of that based on the location. Yeah. And we'll talk about some healthcare disparities later, but I, I bring it up because I, I was talking to someone and they felt like uh, they were receiving a different level of care because their physician wanted to do the procedure in the office versus full anesthesia. I think there's a bit of a, a educational gap for this patient. I try to explain like, no, this procedure is perfectly fine to be done under local and they're actually trying to help you and trying to save you some money. Yeah. You know, um, that's actually really interesting. <sighs> I've, I've definitely had patients question, you know, doing something under local versus having it done at the hospital where sometimes they're kind of like, wait, are you, I've had it both, both ways. Some people are thinking, wait, like, are you safe? <laughs> like, why are you doing it in your office? But like, to be frank, I could probably get you scheduled quicker. Yeah, <laughs> We can get it done quicker. And it's going to be, again, cost effective. You don't necessarily have to not eat after, you know, stop eating after midnight. There's actually a lot of benefits, but because we're so used to, you know, you just go here, go to sleep. That's kind of the norm and the expectation. Uh, I think the other thing is the surgeon has to be comfortable with doing local. And I don't think a lot of people have the patience and the skill to do that, to make it as comfortable for the patients. So that's, I think that also has a big, a plays a big part in whether things are done under local versus anesthesia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Dr. Stevenson, tell us about your journey into healthcare. When did you decide to become a physician and what was your process like? I always wanted to be, uh, maybe I should, I'll, I always wanted to cut things. I'll say that first. Okay. <laughs> I was always... You know, I'm I'm from the Midwest, so my dad and my brothers fished and hunted. And so anytime they were, you know, cleaning the fish or whatever, I'm playing with the guts or, you know, do it. That was kind of it. I just was drawn to it. I loved and what I can see, I can look back now and say that I loved anatomy and kind of seeing the things that we don't see that's on the inside. So I always knew I wanted to do medicine in with regards to surgery. I didn't know what kind of surgery, though. So 
when I went to med school, I was really kind of keeping my options open as far as, you know, the types of surgery. And again, in medical school, you kind of have a limited amount of time to really explore all the different specialties. Right. Um, And so, you know, in the first two years, when we have, you know, the musculoskeletal block and you have the orthopedic surgeons in there and, you know, kind of seeing what's interesting, what's not shadowing them on certain days. Um, but I was initially drawn to gynecologic oncology. Really? And that was and that was mainly because of the physician that kind of introduced me to it. Like he was he was amazing. And then I did my OB gyn rotation and I hated it. <laughs> I was like, if I don't get a, a gynoc fellowship, there's no way. <laughs> I am yeah. not delivering babies. I'm not doing pap smears for the rest of my life. I just cannot. And so I had actually had OB-GYN at the beginning of my third year because I wanted to really know if that was what I wanted to do or not. Then I had my surgery rotation, which I was like, okay, so I OB-GYN's out. Let me see what surgery has. And our surgery rotation was two months. The first month was a general surgery. I had surgical oncology. And then the second month was two two week subspecialties. So I actually had plastics and then transplant. Okay. First day of plastics, I was like, I have to do this. Wow. Now, mind you, this is the pretty much the end of my third year where we're supposed to be applying for residencies. Yeah. <laughs> in close. about yeah, in about like three months. So it, I had two weeks that I determined my whole life off of. And um I actually spoke to a guy in the class ahead of me who was similar to me in that he didn't realize um plastics was what he wanted to do until the very last minute. And I'm sure you recall this in medical school that all the people that want to do like plastics and ortho, they had been knowing from like day one. So they were research projects. They were, you know, getting connected with people. And here I am (laughs) again, three months before we're really supposed to be applying saying, Oh my gosh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Wow. And I, um, spoke to this guy in the class ahead of me who had just matched in plastics. And I said, what do I do? Because like this, I'm really actually blindsided by this. I really didn't, didn't think I was going to enjoy it as much as I did. He's like, I know it's awesome. Right. And he said, go to the chair. He is a straight shooter. Um, tell him you want to apply to plastic surgery residency. And if he would support your application. And he said, he will tell you yes or no. And, you know, based off of what he says, like, you can kind of figure out if, if you want to continue on that with or without his support based off of what he says. And I went and talked to the chair and he said, absolutely, I would support your application. Wow. And yeah, and it was, you know, when you find that thing that you really love and that clicks, it's just, it's interesting. You want to work for it. You want to work hard at it. And again, that was two weeks. And I ended up being able to do my acting internship the next month. Like he worked it out where, right. It was, it was an elective month and I had something else to do. And I asked him, I said, you know, there's no other time for me to do my acting internship fourth year because, you know, all that stuff is scheduled. Everybody's already put their applications in. 
And he and I said, I could potentially do it next month. He said, I'll talk to student affairs and they got it worked out. And so I did my acting internship literally the next month in my third year and worked my butt off. And then I ended up uh, applying and matching there. That That is incredible. And, and two things to highlight. One is the significance of gatekeepers in medicine. Yeah. There's, there's people in certain places which they can help you a lot or hurt you a lot and thank God yeah. that he was there to, to help you. And then, um, you know, so glad you mentioned, especially for the current medical students, you're going to be told that if you don't come in from day one planning on orthopedic surgery or neurosurgery or plastics, that it can't be done. And here you are living proof that, that it still can be. And I'll be honest, you know, there were, there were a lot of lessons learned in that kind of five month period of when I did my plastic surgery rotation to my acting internship and, you know, the months that followed because it gets, you know, it gets ugly when it comes to the competition, you know, people being in your business about, you know, how many interviews you get. And so I, you know, anytime I speak to students, like do not get caught up in that stuff because it's very easy to get um, distracted and frustrated. Um, but what's for you is for you. And so you, how was the residency experience uh, for you? Because plastic surgery has this uh, notoriously, you know, a lot of hype. Is the hype uh, legit, better, <laughs> worse? Oh, well, what, I'm, I'm actually curious now. What <laughs> What's the perception that you have? Uh, yeah, you guys work like dogs. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, so... You know, there's two ways of becoming a plastic surgeon. You can either do general surgery residency, and which can be five to seven years, depending if you do research in there or not, followed by a plastic surgery fellowship, which can be two to three years. More commonly now, you see a lot more plastic surgery residencies, which can be five to seven years. And... I did the plastic surgery residency. Penn State at that point in time was actually transferring from the fellowship to the residency program. Okay. So I think I was in the second second class of plastic surgery residents. Um, and so, you know, our first three years are in general surgery. And it's rough because the hope or the structure is that the general surgery rotations you do you are obviously relevant to what you're going to encounter in plastic surgery. So, you know, with some of the combination cases we do, with even getting familiar with, you know, the GI tract, because you can use different flaps from, you know, the GI tract and those types of things and, and learning anatomy and approaches and those types of things. But I'll tell you what, probably the most intense part is our educational conference. Um, I've been a part of general surgery educational conference. And obviously I've done plastic surgery educational conferences. And I don't know if this has come up on the podcast of pimp sessions, but like the whole goal of ours is to humiliate you. <laughs> oh, And this is at like five thirty six o'clock in the morning. Um, and because it's a, you know, plastic surgery, when we talk about, you know, the reconstructive process you have to have backup plans with backup plans that have backup plans. Yeah. And 
So, you know, ours is obviously very visual. So, you know, we're in this small little library with the dry erase board as the projector screen and we project the images up there. You know, you get up there, you tell them what you see, tell them what your approach is going to be. And, you know, you, t- you you basically explain your thought process and what you would do. And they were like, oh, yeah, that's cute. That dies. What, what do you do next? <laughs> and you, but it's I mean, it gets really brutal. Like, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. What are you going to do next? Because that's not going to work. You know, like and and bec- and it's interesting when I think about that process and then the things that I've seen that it's very true. Because everybody's body's different. Everybody's had different surgeries. And sometimes those things that you bank on are not options. And so you really have to think outside of the box. Um, so in that, that way, plastic surgery training is, it's brutal. But I, but again, I loved it in a way. I have a love-hate relationship. Now, <laughs> when now, I get back at residency. <laughs> it sounds like it. I, did. I love the, uh, I'll say this, I love the field. Okay. <laughs> the process was very, very hard. Now, do you think that's the culture of certain programs, or do you think across the board that they have that kind of malignant uh, nature to them? Hmm, that's a good question. I think I think some of it is the culture of the specialty. But yeah, I did some I did some away rotations at other facilities, and I feel like they were similar. Huh. I okay. do. Um, and I, you know, I hate to say like, <laughs> that's how they got you confident. Cause I, I, I really don't, I don't believe you have to like beat somebody down to build them up. I, I don't, I'm not a believer necessarily in that, but there, again, for some of the kind of stuff we do, you do have to have a certain amount of confidence <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because, you know, you think about it, you're just like, how, like, how do you do that? Like that's, how does someone let us take the skull off of their child to reconstruct. Like it's, yeah. it's just some crazy yeah. stuff. You know what I mean? Like there's gotta be a bit of overconfidence to say, yeah, no, no I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> I can take, I can take your radius and re- reconstruct, you know, like it's, there's some crazy, crazy things um, that do take a certain amount of confidence. Uh, but no. I, I think, I do think, I do think a significant part is the personality of the specialty. Gotcha. That's, that's very interesting, especially, you know, because we're kind of trying to, there's a push for the kinder, gentler medical education. Mm-hmm. And personally, I do pretty well in that kind of more intense environment. Yeah. But I know some people don't do as well. So what would you say to folks that maybe don't thrive in environments like that, that want to go into plastic surgery? Mm. I would say do what you need to do to get through it. But, and, um, kind of one of my mentalities is, you know, you learn from everybody, you learn from the people that you want to emulate and you learn from the people you don't want to emulate. So, you know, meaning that if you have some kind of experience during residency where you're like, that was truly traumatizing, I will make note to myself never to do that. Yeah. You know, or, or and thinking of other ways that that could have better been taught or explained or communicated. Sometimes it's just a matter of doing what you need to do to get through, making that mental note of how you would do that differently. And going from there and being a better surgeon and physician, taking that into account. Yeah. 
No, that's a good way to look at it and to approach things. And we're glad you made it through and you can be that mm-hmm. kinder, gentler plastic surgeon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, no, it's it's funny, too, because um, the, the my co-resident that I matched with was also a woman. I think that was the first year that they took two women. And we were in the same class together, graduating from medical school. And we told each other, we said, listen, if... If you see me starting to act like a jerk, like for absolutely no reason, like I give you permission to hit me because we don't want to be that, that thing that we've seen. I don't want to be that. I don't want to become that. Like call me out on it. If it's completely uncalled for, call me out on it. Did it ever come to that? No, because I think, I think we, that, that was kind of the way that we functioned in, you know, there's there's a better way sometimes than, you know, the easy default. And that's why we need more people like you in these, uh, these specialties that are, are typically hard to match into. We need more representation of, of all sorts. Yeah. So Dr. Stevenson, you, you finished felt uh, residency. You, you made it through, you survived, you practiced <laughs> for a bit, and then you decided to step out on your own. You started cardinal plastic surgery can you tell us about that decision to hang a shingle and go into private practice? So I'll be honest. I probably have to start with finishing residency where, you know, there were some fellow residents that, you know, started private practices. Um, those are the people that did not go into academia. A lot of the other residents went into academia so that, you know, they were going to be at a hospital system. I didn't really, nobody was necessarily saying, start your own practice. I feel like the, the, again, the default or the encouraging, the way they would encourage you is like to go into academia. Okay. So I didn't necessarily think of any other thing other than being like a hospital employee. So, you know, I did what I thought was the easiest thing to do coming out of residency, needing to prepare for boards um, and being a hospital employee. And I do think that that was definitely a good learning experience because I didn't necessarily know any, anybody like personally close to me that had a private practice um, and starting it from scratch. And so I do think it was very valuable being an employed plastic surgeon at a hospital just to see what some of the barriers are in healthcare. Um, Because I don't think medical education teaches us enough about insurance, about, you know, billing and coding and just how the whole machine runs. So when I left there, again, I, I was actually looking for businesses down here in Virginia, just wanting to get some of that business and private practice uh, exposure under my belt, and then potentially like, okay, now that you know, now that I've gotten some of this experience on how to run practice, maybe I'll venture out on my own. And there was nobody, and this is this is an interesting story all on its own, that wanted to hire a black female plastic surgeon. Hmm. Yeah, and it was interesting because at that point in time, I have some other friends who are black women plastic surgeons and they were at the same time also venturing out 
starting their own practices, either leaving private practices or just starting their own from scratch. And one of them checked in on me while I was, you know, interviewing and looking around. And she said, she said, no, you're going to have to start your own. I was like, really? She said, yeah. She said, I point blank had somebody tell me I was the most qualified person, but their practice couldn't take a black woman plastic surgeon. What? Right. And so I'm, you know, I'm sitting here wondering like, why am I like, you know, people are saying, oh, we want to go in a different direction. And, you know, you don't want to read it that way. Cause I'm like, I know that there are people right out of residency that are joining private practices. So what is the deal? Like I've passed my boards, like what is going on? And it's true. So at that point in time, when she said that, I said, well, I guess this is what we're doing. So it really wasn't me starting my own private practice was not my plan A, but it it had to be. And I'll be honest, it's it's been very, very rewarding. It's been very hard work. I wouldn't trade it for anything, not just for the independence, but for how I'm now able to really appreciate what it's particularly, you know, people talk about the old good old days and, you know, everybody was like a private practice, community doctor, where you weren't forced to do what a hospital or insurance company told you to do. And those are the things that I really think is missing from medical education and resident education. Nobody talks about how the machine runs you're, I look back and I think I was just trained to be a hamster in the wheel. Right. And so it's been very eye-opening. And I, I, I think every medical student and every resident should have some exposure to private practices. They're disappearing because, you know, larger hospital systems are buying them up. Yeah, you see a lot of private practices. Well, I would... Let me clarify. There are private practices that are disappearing mainly because a lot of larger hospital systems are buying them up and the physicians are becoming employed um, by the by the hospital system. And, you know, if you have a larger hospital system, it's very difficult for those smaller practices to compete. Um, but you are also seeing a growing number of the practice primary care doctors, and I'm not sure if um, this is a topic that you've covered, but it'd be very interesting because I think more medical students and residents need to know about it, um, direct primary care. Mm. Uh, and I actually have a good friend down in Austin who started his practice where, again, it's you're bypassing the insurance company. It's self-pay, it's a direct relationship, cheaper and uh, more affordable health care um, that's better for the patient and the physician. So you have private practices, again, that can't compete with these um, larger hospital systems, but there is an independence and a power of a physician that is in private practice that I truly do feel that that would be a part of. I think the growing conversation in the medical community amongst physicians is that you know, we're losing jobs and yeah. we're not, we're not needed. <laughs> Other people are taking over because again, if, if you're employed at a hospital system, 
and they decide to, you know, fire you and hire somebody else, you feel disposable. Right. You went through all of the training and everything for no reason. But I think private practice, to me, that's a way of physicians in some way taking their power back. And uh, being able to run and run your practice and to take care of patients the way you want to, as opposed to how administration is telling you to. That, no, that's uh, awesome. How long did it take you to go from the idea of cardioplastic surgery mm-hmm. to opening your doors? One year. That's, oh, wow. Yeah, I, um, it was probably, that was probably maybe May of 2017, where I had that discussion with that other plastic surgeon. Oh, I take that back. I think it was like July. And I literally drove down here to Virginia from upstate New York to find a place to live. My mom didn't know that's what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) And I found a place to live. I drove back and moved down here within a month. And um, even when I was putting my deposit down on my, uh, on my townhouse, the bank where I went, I asked them if they had a healthcare loan officer and they hooked me up with him right away. And it, I, I was starting that process when I came down here to find a place wow. to live. And from there it was, you know, finding a realtor and all those types of things. I moved down here and got started. And so, you know, with, the banking and the financial aspect, getting in connection with people. Again, I literally started from scratch. I wasn't from the area. People didn't know me. I wasn't purchasing a practice. It was literally from square one. But I'll be honest, it was probably one of the greatest learning processes and still is. That's good. That's really encouraging to hear that something as intimidating as opening your own practice can be successful, can be a good and rewarding experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I would, I would say that one of the first things, (laughs) one of the many conversations I had with myself when I started the process, because again, it seemed overwhelming. I'm like, I don't even know what I don't know. I gave myself permission to not know. If I was talking to people who assumed that I knew the ins and outs, of starting a practice of, you know, uh, properties and all those kinds of things. I let them know. I said, you talk to me like I'm in fifth grade. Even if, even if I thought I'd heard it before, I said, no, explain it to me. Because the more questions you ask and the more times people are able to explain things to you, you catch different things Yeah, and things think in a different way and you get a better appreciation. Oh, so that's what that meant. So I had, I gave myself permission to not know. And there was a huge amount of humility in that where I knew people would be looking at me like, why don't you know that? I don't know because I don't know it. I've never done this before. Explain it to me. And I think again, like in medicine, we do get, we do have this, there's a pride where it's like, oh yeah, I know that. You have to kind of let that go, especially when you start your own business. And I think we should take that in medicine as well, but that's kind of again, the culture of medicine. Yeah, no, that's, that's good to know. So Dr. Uh, Dr. Stevenson, as a black woman, plastic surgeon, what does that mean for your patients? We know there's healthcare disparities. I remember for the first time watching your social media, you mentioned some healthcare disparities with uh, post mastectomy reconstruction stuff. I didn't even know existed mm-hmm. as an anesthesiologist. Um, but what have, what do you know about plastic surgery and how it disproportionately affects 
black people and black women? Yeah. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, it's 2021 and we still talk about a lot of healthcare disparities. You know, the most common thing, again, for me when it comes to reconstruction would be breast reconstruction. And I still meet women who've had mastectomies or some kind of can- breast cancer treatment, even within the last, you know, five to seven years who say, no one even told me that reconstruction was an option, hmm. which is insane to me that my, you know, when it comes to recon- to plastic surgery, and we talked about reconstructive process. I think of myself as someone who's able to provide restoration and to think that there is a whole segment of people who are being denied restoration disturbs me. And, you know, when I talk about breast reconstruction or just breast in general, I feel like that is kind of, the, it's symbolic of, you know, women's rights mm. where people would otherwise say, well, just be glad you don't have breast cancer. Well, you know, as a woman, your breasts are a part of a huge part of your physical identity. When you're developing, what do you, who, what are you comparing when you're in fifth and sixth grade? Who starts wearing a training bra? So you can't say that that is not a significant, a, a significant part of a woman's identity and body image, but to say that it's not significant enough to offer restoration of that thing. Body image, motherhood, sexuality, but they're only sexualized. That's the only importance for them. Mm. But when it comes to breast cancer, who cares? That, that, that's why I find myself on the end of being a women's rights advocate, even when it comes to just breasts in general, where, you know, a lot of people, and this is any patients that I talk to about breast reconstruction, I always let them know about the Women's Health Care and Breast Cancer Act, stating that it has to be covered. Anything you have done for reconstruction of your breast, whether you had a mastectomy on one side and you had a surgery on the other breast to provide symmetry. Anything you have done related to your breast cancer surgery is covered by insurance. Really? It's not cosmetic. Even if you had it done and, you know, 10 years, 15 years down the road, something doesn't look right, something changes you want to address, it is not cosmetic. And the fact that women do not know that, again, disturbs me. So it's, you have a right that you are led to believe is just superficial when it's not. Like, that's a part of your body. So, you know, when I, and, and the most common cohorts of people that that is denied to are black women. Yeah. Either, either that decision is made for them that, oh, you know, they won't need reconstruction. Or they, you know, they just aren't told about it. And again, I gave a talk, I guess it was two years ago now. And they had women coming up to me. They're like, yeah, I had a mastectomy like five years ago. Nobody told me that I could have reconstruction. Oh my God. Right. It's, it's like, that's horrific. 
And not even just that part, then you talk about how that affects their relationships with their partner. Like everybody's feeling uncomfortable about, you know, the changes in the body and nobody wants to talk about it because nobody's talking about how you talk about it. Like it's, there's so much in this topic, relationships and families fall apart over this, but no one, you know, no one, it's, it's this thing that nobody feels is important enough to discuss. So I get very, very passionate <laughs> when it comes to not only with breast reconstruction, but even like breast reductions. Insurance companies make it so hard for women that are in pain to have that addressed. Well, I mean, and and once again, as a dude, I mean, I didn't know much until I saw your post. I was like, whoa, this is a big deal. And then I looked up the article. And since then, I've at least known that this disparity exists. And I'm so yeah. glad that women have you. And as the, the surgical specialties become, you know, more diverse with both women physicians and surgeons of color, that we can help to eradicate and and fight back on some of these healthcare disparities. Right. Exactly. And that's, and that's, you know, if, if we aren't there to bring it up, it doesn't get talked about. Yeah. Wow. That, that is a, that's heavy, but, oh man, thank you so much for sharing. And, and hopefully, you know, as our listeners are empowered by this information, they too can go out and, and champion for, for this no, thank you for giving me this platform and thank you for having this podcast to discuss these types of things. Of course. And and thank you so much for coming on the show. Now, we can't let you go without you telling us about Cardinal Plastic Surgery, what services you offer, yeah. how people can get a hold of you. Yeah. So um, Cardinal Plastic Surgery um, is the name of my practice. And my motto is where you are the standard of beauty, because I think so often we look to other things to compare ourselves with um, as if we're worthy enough. But I think everybody has something, at least one thing that they admire and love about themselves that is a, um, a point of beauty, um, that you are the standard of beauty. My practice is located in Chesapeake, Virginia, and my website is cardinalplasticsurgery.com. Um, I'm active on social media to an extent. Social media is exhausting. I just have to say that for the <laughs> For one thing, so Facebook and Instagram and, uh, you know, either reach out on social media or I can be reached and my contact information is there um, and on the website. Um, we offer, uh, again, general plastic surgery, so cosmetic and reconstructive. So when it comes to cosmetic, surgical and non-surgical, so, you know, neurotoxins, dermal fillers, skin peels, microneedling, and just general the general uh, breadth of plastic surgery. And you've been open for how many years now? So we are in the third year right now. I opened December of 2018. I'm in year three. Congratulations. Yes. I remember I came out, visited Thanks. your amazing office just to look and see and support this sister plastic surgeon. Thank you. And I survived the pandemic. Listen, this was real. Yeah, how was, <laughs> how was that? Yeah, year two for me was the pandemic, and that was stressful. I'm not going to lie. I made it through, and things are really starting to pick up. Um, there's been a an interesting uh, phenomenon that we've noticed in plastic surgery now that everybody's doing things virtually because everybody has to look at their face all the time. They're like, wait a minute. Huh. <laughs> 
uh, I didn't know I looked like that. <laughs> so now there's a lot more people coming in, not only to get things done to their face, but because if they're working from home, they, you know, that's their downtime to recover. So we've actually seen a boost uh, and a boom in more of the cosmetics. So an interesting pandemic. Uh, I don't want to say it's a plus necessarily, but yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad you're able to keep the doors open. Yes. Yes, me too. And let me know when I can come down and schedule some uh, calf injections or, or we work on my abs for hot, hot boy summer. <laughs> calf implants or anything like that. Yeah. Liposculpting. There you go. Well, Dr. Stevenson, thank you so much for joining us. I know our listeners are going to greatly benefit and enjoy learn from the things you shared. Thank you. Thank you for having me too. Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.